Okay, Isaiah chapter 40. I'd like to start reading the first few verses here. Isaiah 40. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem, and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of him that cries in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, every mountain or hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. The voice said, Cry, and he said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all the goodliness thereof <clears throat> is as the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, because the Spirit of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people is grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Now, what's going on here? <clears throat> These words are well known, but to actually put meaning into words, what does this phrase mean, what does that sentence refer to, is not quite so easy. Now, Isaiah 40 follows straight on, I suggest, from chapter 39, which is to me a great disappointment. It's when Hezekiah was, was healed, um, and the Sennacherib's invasion is destroyed, and Judah is free, and uh, God gives him 15 more years, and he says, oh, well, that's cool that I got 15 more years. I'm glad that peace and truth shall be in my day, and if later on we're going to go into captivity, well, I don't really care. And um, I'm just going to get on and enjoy my 15 years, and that's good for me. And he boasts about his wealth to the ambassadors from Babylon, and I find that a very sad ending, really. It seems to me that Hezekiah could have been the messianic king. And I would go so far as to say that the kingdom of God, in essence, could have been established in some form at that time. But Hezekiah didn't want that, and so it didn't happen. The people didn't want it. And I see chapter 40 as uh, an appeal, all the same, to Zion, to Jerusalem, to, to repent. Now, it's clear that from chapter 40 onwards in Isaiah, the style is somewhat different to the earlier half of Isaiah. And why is that? Well, reading Isaiah 1 to uh, 36, it's quite clear that that whole section refers to Hezekiah and uh, that, that, that part of Judah's history. From chapter 40 onwards, it's hard to work it out. What's it referring to? Some of it clearly applies to Hezekiah. Some of it obviously applies to the restoration from Babylon. And we've just read verses here that are quoted by John the Baptist and about John the Baptist in the first century. What's going on? Well, I suggest what's going on is this. That Hezekiah could have been the Messiah, the Messianic king. That the Messianic kingdom could have come. And so chapter 40 onwards yes, does uh, have a lot of reference to uh, Hezekiah. But I suggest that he failed, and Judah failed at that time to fulfill the possibility, the potential that there could have been. And therefore, therefore, the whole prophecy of restoration, etc., was given a possible fulfillment at the restoration from Babylon after 70 years. And I suggest that under inspiration, this section, Isaiah 40 to the end, was rewritten. And that's why you can see some similarities with the, the first part of Isaiah, and yet you can also see that uh, this is talking about the restoration from Babylon. I mean, it mentions Cyrus by name, so that's pretty clear that it, it refers to that. 
And yet there's also these connections with Hezekiah. And in fact, from Isaiah um, about 56 to 66, um, some people call that third Isaiah, um, the tone changes and it becomes very critical of Israel or Judah. And that's again understandable. Criticizing them for failing to live up to the potential. So the prophecy didn't come true in Hezekiah's time, so it was deferred, given another chance of fulfillment at uh, the time of the restoration. Didn't work out. Then it was applied to John the Baptist. Judah, Israel did not repent at that time either. Uh, and so ultimately it will come true when the Lord Jesus returns. Now, <clears throat> on to start off at verse 1, comfort, comfort my people. Now, the call to comfort Judah is a command. And yet, several times in Isaiah, it is Yahweh himself who comforts Zion. I, even I, am he that comforts you. Isaiah 51:12. And yet, how does God achieve that? He achieves it through these people who are preaching to Zion. And so in all the work of witness, particularly this call uh, to Judah to repent, it seems to me that we have God absolutely behind us. And the Hebrew word translated comfort, um, it also is translated to repent. And there's this uh, hint that the comfort that is being uh, offered to Jerusalem is actually a call to repentance. And when we read um, about the valleys, uh, being exalted and the mountains brought down and the crooked made straight and the rough places plain, verse 4, that's understood by John the Baptist as meaning repent, making the rough places plain, preparing this path for the glory of the Lord and the Lord Jesus to, to come over. So then, this appeal to repent is made by God. He, I, even I, am he that comforts you. But in reality, it was made through people. And so in all your witness, in your taking a deep breath and summing up the, uh, the strength to actually change a conversation round, to actually talk about the gospel to someone, and especially in any attempt to, <clears throat> to witness to Israel, you will feel the very special presence of God himself. I, even I, am he that is appealing to people through you. Well, God had said in Lamentations a number of times during the 70 years captivity, I will not comfort you. And now he's saying, I will comfort you, because, verse 2, her warfare is accomplished. Now, accomplished is the same word in Second Chronicles 36, verse 21, and Daniel 9, verse 2, where we read that the land of Judah was to accomplish 70 years, or fulfill 70 years before the restoration. And so, he's saying that the time's up. The 70 years period is finished. It's accomplished. And, of course, that was the application to the exiles, to Hezekiah. The application was, I think, quite simply, the war, the war is over. The Assyrian invasion that took all the cities of Judah, that's all finished. Uh, war is over. It's accomplished. That's, uh, I think, the, the point. Um, and he goes on, warfare is accomplished. Her iniquity is pardoned. Well, I think that's the assurance in Hezekiah's time that all the sins of Judah and Jerusalem that are listed in Isaiah 1 um, have been forgiven. And, of course, with the Judah in exile, your sin has been pardoned. 
And yet on that basis, because your iniquity is pardoned, therefore repent, be comforted, be repented. Uh, and verse 4, therefore um, make the crooked straight and the rough places plain. So you see that the appeal for repentance is not so that forgiveness can be given. The appeal for repentance is because forgiveness has already been, been given. Now I'll say that again. It's not that if you repent, you get forgiven. It's because you have already been forgiven, therefore repent. And when John the Baptist went about fulfilling all this, he baptized people unto repentance. Matthew 3. Uh, it's very clear on that. He baptized people unto repentance. Repentance was the end hope that began with them being baptized. So you'll never repent totally. you never get yourself right and straight before God, because if you then come to God saying, well, I'm good enough for you now, I'm all fixed and sorted, you maybe totally don't get it. And so what I'm saying is that if sin, if your sin worries you, which it should, and you think, oh, how can I repent of that and be forgiven? You know what? God has already forgiven you. Paul talks in some quite stunning past tenses about this, that it, forgive one another, Ephesians 5.32, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. You've already been forgiven. It is, if I may use a terrible phrase, a case in this context of name it and claim it. Not, uh, you know, give me money or give me a car or this kind of nonsense. No, but in spiritual terms, yes. God has forgiven you. God is outside of time, as you and I are, understand it, and he knows your sin, and he has forgiven you. And repentance is to agree with that. When they confess their sins, when John the Baptist fulfilled this prophecy, it says people confess their sins, and that Greek word to confess means to agree to. They agreed. Yes, I am a sinner. They repented, they rethought. Now, when he says here that the valley should be exalted and the mountains and the hills made low, crooked made straight, um, of course, yes, it is a reference to how in the days before tarmac, um, when a great person was going to come, you did uh, make the road level. Uh, and uh, I think that the, the valleys being exalted is maybe people who have such a low opinion of themselves that they actually cannot come to believe in God's love for them. But they are significant before God, but they are lifted up. And of course the proud, the uh, arrogant, will be brought down. So I think that that, uh, that is really how the gospel is a great leveller of people. And the comfort is, verse, uh, verse 2, because she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. This is God almost taking the blame. I punished her double what she should have had. Well, in other parts of the Old Testament and the prophets, we read that God punished Judah less than her iniquities deserved. And yet here God kind of takes all the blame. Ah, yeah, I punish her double from what you should have had. Later on in Isaiah, he says, oh, poor Judah, she was like a beautiful young woman whose husband left her. Poor kid. But now I just left her for a little moment for 70 years, and now I'm coming to take you back. I mean, wait a minute, she wasn't this 
pretty young, faithful wife who was left by this bad husband. I mean, she is described in Ezekiel, uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, without any, any beating around the bush, as the worst kind of prostitute. No question. And yet, God, as it were, takes all the blame. I punish a poor kid twice for her sins. Double. She got double. When actually, <laughs> other verses say he did not punish her according to her sins at all. And so, I think in this you see God's almost desperation for relationship with his people. And if you wonder whether really God is kind of switched on to you, whether your sins or your dysfunction or your just sort of low level of spiritual life is such that God's kind of not that switched on about you, let's think of this. That he so thirsts for relationship with Israel that he, as it were, takes all the blame. I punish you double what I should have done for your sins. This is God really appealing for their repentance and what they actually had done. And even then they didn't get it. That's why God is almost a tragic figure. That Later on in Isaiah, I stretch forth my hand all day long, pleading with a disobedient and gainsaying people. So what then is the, the message? Well, Cry unto her, verse 2. And this is the same cry as in verse 6. A voice says cry. And another voice is like a, a radio play, a play for voices. And the other vo voice says, and what shall I cry? And then another voice says, all flesh is grass. So the appeal to repent is because all flesh is grass. The cry to comfort or repent is uh, fleshed out a bit. Uh, in terms of the messages, all flesh is grass. Now, that's amazing when you think about it, because if you just take that as it stands, as a description of human mortality, all flesh is grass, and all the goodliness thereof is as the flower of the field, and the grass withers and the flower fades, actually, our mortality, the fact that you were once uh, a handsome young man, and once you were a beautiful young woman, but now, you ain't a beauty, but hey, you're all right kind of thing. You know, you know what I'm saying? Um, the fact that that happens inevitably and inexorably in every single human life, our mortality, the fact that you shall die, that I shall die, is actually part of the good news. That the gospel is that all flesh is God's. And that's great, because what for the unbelieving world is is the worst possible truth that they have to cope with, that all flesh is as grass, is for us good news. That sure, this flesh is all going to finish. That we shall wither and fade and we shall die. But, but, this is the whole thing, that, that is the, the, the gateway, if you like, to resurrection of the body, to the good news of God's kingdom. But I think it goes more than that. The cry, in verse 2, is that, Look, your sin's been forgiven, you've had your judgment, it's really okay. And I think that the message, verse 6 and 7, that the, all flesh is grass and the flower fades because the Spirit of the Lord blows upon it, this is actually not just talking about human mortality, it's talking about the fact that we have been judged. Why do I say that? Well, look at verse 24 talking about the, the Gentile uh, world, that God shall blow upon them, and they shall wither. So God blowing upon 
the Gentiles and them with them is a picture of judgment, of his judgment of them. The grass withers is actually quite a common figure for judgment in Isaiah alone. Uh, Running out of time, but 15 verse 6, 19 verses 5 and 7, 27 verse 11, uh, 42 verse 15. um, All the time, the grass withering is being used as a figure of judgment. And even here in chapter 40 verse 24, uh, they shall wither when God blows upon them. The flower fades. Well, that is used only one other time. That's in Isaiah again, 28 verse 1, about the drunken men of Ephraim. Their flower fades. And it's talking about how they shall be judged. It's a lament about the judgment that is to come. But they shall, their flower shall fade in judgment. Because the Spirit of the Lord, chapter 40, Verse 7 blows upon it. And the idea of, of that word for blowing is to disperse. And it's the same idea that you got in Ezekiel, where Judah are told that God is going to disperse them with his wind, with his blowing, into exile. And so the point is that all this has happened. You have been as grass, the Spirit of the Lord has blown and dispersed you, um, your flower has faded, the Spirit of the Lord has blown upon you. Uh, this is, these are all uh, metaphors for judgment. And so what's being said, the cry is, look, you're mortal and you've received God's judgment. Don't worry. Which is the cry of verse 2. Your iniquity is pardoned, you have received. Double for your sins, your warfare is accomplished. It's over and done now. You could argue, and I'm not quite sure about this, but you could argue that our mortality is actually the, the judgment for sin. And whether that is so or not on a sort of theological level, I'm not sure. But um, what we do know is clearly from the New Testament, Romans 8 verse 1, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And John 5 24, that all those that have believed into Christ shall not pass into judgment, into condemnation. And so this is the amazing good news, that we shall not be condemned. And... Judah didn't get it, and that's why there's this rather elaborate uh, radio play, as I call it, this play for voices, these different voices coming in saying different things, to try to appeal to them, by all means, to get the point that your judgment is passed. And actually, they did not accept it, not in Hezekiah's time, not at the return from from exile, not actually in, in John the Baptist's time, and so it comes down to us. Do we believe it? Will we believe it? That really our judgment, our condemnation is past, and it shall not come upon us. That we, in Christ, are secure. Because he is not going to be condemned. And if we are in him, if we are abiding in him, then we can be sure that by his grace we shall live forever in his kingdom. And we shall not, in that sense, be condemned. Because there's the whole point of Romans 1-8, to that we have been uh, tried and found absolutely guilty, we have agreed with that verdict, and yet there has been this amazing appeal. And we have been freed from condemnation. Now, if this were to happen, if Israel, as a, Judah as a whole, uh, at that time, or maybe in the time of John the Baptist, have really accepted this, 
that condemnation is not for me, that it's all gone, it's all past, everything is actually all right. Then, verse 5, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. The idea is they're making uh, the highway of stones, etc., making it beautifully smooth, so that the king can come. Quite clearly, if Judah had repented at the time of Isaiah, Hezekiah, at the time of the Restoration, at the time of John the Baptist, then the glory of the Lord would have come over that road. That road is the road made up of repentant, contrite people who believe in God's grace, who believe that this judgment, this condemnation is no longer for them. And then the glory of the Lord will come, and the Lord will come over that road. So quite clearly, there is a connection between the chronological coming of the Lord in glory and the preparation for that by his people in their repentance, and particularly, I believe, in the repentance of uh, the remnant in Judah, in, in Israel. So, that is why the exact calendar date of the Lord's coming is in that sense open. And that is why the quicker we get on ourselves and repent and accept his grace, humble ourselves if we're arrogant, and lift ourselves up in thinking that, no, I am not too bad for him, I am of significance, I am of meaning and value to him. Uh, and the quicker we get on and get Israel to accept that actually uh, your judgment is over. It's all okay now. Just believe in his grace. Uh, then he will come. And the, the way will be prepared. And so therefore our work of witness, as well as our own uh, personal repentance, is of very deep significance, finally and ultimately. We are playing a part in our witness and in our personal repentance in things that are of eternal moment that can hasten, in that sense, the coming of Christ. Now, the chapter goes on with some rather, uh, it sort of changes apparently its style. It starts talking about how God is so powerful and how he knows everything. Now, why does he do that? I think it's because the people of Hezekiah's time, the people of the Restoration, from Babylon thought, no, this is all too wonderful for me. I am insignificant. And God is saying, yes, I am very great, and yes, the nations are just as a drop of them in a bucket to me, uh, and yes, I bring princes to nothing, as he had done with the destruction of Sennacherib's uh, host of princes um, outside Jerusalem, and yes, as he had uh, done effectively by manipulating the leaders of uh, Babylon to allow the people to, or Persia to allow the, the Jews to return. But I am extremely sensitive to you. And he gives power, verse 29, to the faint. The, the, the weak builders, rebuilders of Jerusalem, and of course to Hezekiah, who was so sick at the time of uh, the, the invasion by Sennacherib, he was sick at the same time as the invasion, um, verse 31, uh, sorry, verse 30, uh, the young men shall utterly fail, the youth shall be faint and weary, but they that wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. I think this is definitely a reference to Hezekiah as a relatively young man, 
being so weak and yet renewing his strength. And God is saying he is a representative king. He's representative of, of all of you, uh, if you want it. And so there they were complaining that God is, is so far away from us, he's not really active. Uh, and it's so frustrating, as it were, to God when he's given them this wonderful message that, look, I feel to you as if I punish you too hard. Your condemnation is over. You will not come into judgment. It's all okay. If uh, you can just believe it, it's fine. You are forgiven. Please repent. Please accept it. Um, you, you have suffered already. Uh, that's fine. All that's left is, is really for me to come and establish the kingdom. And they were like, well, no, he's so, so far away. We are insignificant, and we have sinned, and etc., and it's all not fair. Um, and that God is, well, he's maybe just like uh, one of these other gods of the nations. He may exist, but just like the other gods, and God says, look, I'm incompatible. My power and might, I know every single star. I know every one of you. In verse 27 they say, My way is hid from the Lord. My justice has been passed over. has been ignored by my God. This is exactly the spirit of the exiles in Ezekiel 18, where they complain again. Ezekiel 18, 25, 29, Ezekiel 33, 20. It's all the same. God is somehow unjust. His ways are not equal. Uh, they, they complain. Because somehow he's very distant from us. And God is pleading with them here as he pleads with us, as we struggle, I suppose, with the apparent distance of God, with the apparent uh, difficulty that we have in accepting him for who he is uh, and accepting a good news that is almost too good news. He's saying, I know every star. The dust of the earth, and who's the dust of the earth? It's Israel, according to the promises to Abraham, uh, is all numbered. And I know you, and I wish you only good at your latter end. This really is, as Peter says when he quotes this chapter, this is the good news. 